and greetings programs and welcome to a special edition of the awesome friday podcast dan mervish is an award-winning filmmaker known for films such as bernard and huey and omaha the musical his latest film 18 and a half is a genre mashup part thriller part dark comedy set in the 70s and surrounding and adjacent to the watergate scandal in the film, a young transcriptionist played by Willa Fitzgerald listens to the notorious missing 18 and a half minutes of the Nixon-Watergate tapes and brings them to a idealistic journalist played by John Margaro. To listen to the tape, they take up residence at a small motel, which is filled with colorful characters, played by the likes of Bonnie Curtis Hall, Richard Kind, Catherine Curtin, and more. Here is a listen to the trailer. The Watergate scandal continues to grip the nation as the infamous 18 and a half minute gap in the Nixon tape. There was a tape. Yeah, this tape was never subpoenaed. Why? Nobody knows it exists. I think the best course of action is that I take the tape. I give you this tape, you splash it all over the cover of the Times, it gets traced back to me in a heartbeat. You win the Pulitzer and I get indicted. No. Yeah, I think there's a motel nearby, the Silver Sands. We go there, we listen to it, we leave. it. Anything is possible, young lady. I don't know how, but they hey, know we're here. Hey, who is they? It could be anyone. It could be the FBI, the CIA. KGB could be a post reporter we for all I know. We need to listen to the tape. You know what to do. Who is it, dear? Oh, it's a newlywed couple. We brought her pyre from home, and it was broken. We were wondering if we could borrow yours. 18 and a half minute gap. Maybe no one is supposed to do this. What is happening? Nixon. Let this Watergate thing get out of our grip box. It's a drag. Uh, like this, Al. I push the right two buttons, right? What are you, is that the news? Are you, are you listening to Nixon? Soak it up. It'll soon be over. Well, 30 years from now, I want to be remembered, Bob. You will, sir. You will. I sat down with Dan on Zoom just a few weeks ago, and here now is that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Good morning, Dan. My name is Matthew. Nice to meet you. How are you today? Uh, great to meet you, Matthew. Yeah, thanks for having me on. No problem. Um, I first saw your movie at uh, Whistler Film Festival like six months ago. Oh, yeah. Wow. And it's finally coming out. So how does that feel? Uh, it feels great. Yeah, no, it's, it, it was great. We had a, a, a really wonderful uh, festival run. We played in 21 festivals in, in four continents, including Whistler and um and uh, so it's nice to finally bring it out to the to the rest of the country and and ultimately the world. <laughs> <laughs> Are you feeling a sense of uh, of relief, or is it like just like anxiety? Like where are you, where are you at with it right now? <laughs> <laughs> with my emotional health, um, yeah, no, I, I I feel pretty good about it. It's we've had you know it's really nice seeing it with um, you know in different parts of the of the U.S. and or, or for our theatrical release and and you know, audiences genuinely seem to like it. So, um, so that's, that's relief. Um, but it's, you know, I mean, I love festival audiences because they usually, uh, they usually 
you know, get a lot of people into in the door. So it's in some ways, it's harder to do a theatrical release, because honestly, not as many people show up, um, especially in the middle of the pandemic. But, uh, but, you know, we've been kind of somewhat by luck and somewhat by design, we've been kind of riding the the, the troughs of the of the COVID wave. So we, in the fall, with Whistler, for example, we were in that trough between Delta and Omicron. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for like two months, we played 10 festivals there. And then in the spring, between the Omicron and World War Three, we played about another 10 festivals. So uh, and now we're kind of between World War Three and monkeypox, you know, that'll be the next thing. So, you know, we've got a little limited window here where it's been good to play in theaters along with Top Gun, you know, which is our, you know, our colleague in theaters right now. So Right. So it's a natural pairing, too. Yeah, really. absolutely. I mean, well, someone said we both had really good sound design. So I was like, all right. Yeah, we I'll take yeah, that. <laughs> I'll take that. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess the, the first question, and I'm sure it's a question you've had a lot, but why why Watergate and why now? Well, yeah, I mean, this was kind of inspired by the November 2016 presidential election uh, here in the States when Donald Trump got elected that that just coincidentally that same day I was going out to see Jules Pfeiffer, who wrote my last film, Bernard and Huey, um, and Pfeiffer had gotten a Pulitzer Prize for cartooning for the Village Voice for um, mainly for his Nixon and, and Watergate cartoons. So inevitably the comparisons we discussed were between Nixon and Trump and how many impeachments could we possibly have in the next four years. Um, and then that night I wound up staying at this place called the Silver Sands Motel, uh, which is in Greenport, New York. This is all the tip of Long Island in, in New York. And my buddy Terry had inherited this place basically from his grandparents and it, who had built it in the fifties and sixties. And he very smartly preserved it kind of as if it was, you know, still set in 1974. And, and they do a lot of, <coughs> sorry, fashion shoots out there, but no one had ever shot a full feature. And he said, well, if you come up with an idea, we're closed in the winter and you and the cast and crew can all stay out here. So then it was a question of how do you get a Watergate film, you know, cause which, you know, cause it looked like 1974, we had Watergate on the mind. Um, you know, how do you film that at a, at a seaside resort and then coming up with the storyline behind it. But, you know, but honestly, I'd been thinking about Watergate for, for years. I, I worked in Washington as a Senate speechwriter in the um, early nineties, I guess, uh, before I went to film school and I knew some people tangentially involved with Watergate and, and, and president and presidential campaign in 72. So, um, and it's something I'd been thinking about, had written about a little bit in another context. So, um, so I'd always kind of wanted to do something Watergate related because it is such a great trove of, you know, paranoia and and goofiness, like all wrapped into one, you know, and so hopefully we made a film that does that. <laughs> yeah, that actually uh, makes sense. It's it's such a weird and big cultural touchstone, even even yeah. up here in Canada, like it's, you know. The, the long running joke is that we know more of American history than most Americans do. But I think that's one that sure. everybody knows. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's that's the thing is it really is the scandal that you can, you know, everyone can kind of still point to 50 years later and, and know and everyone knows enough about it. Like, you know, you don't need to know anything about it to see to enjoy the movie or see the movie. But um, but it, what's great about doing any kind of, you know, political <laughs> scandal thing. Uh, set 50 years ago, like like Watergate, is that it has enough cultural and political resonance and relevance to 
that people can kind of read into it what they want about contemporary society, whether it's in Trump in the States or, you know, in, in Brazil, we showed it and, and people were like, oh yeah, this is just like Bolsonaro or, or in the UK, they were like, oh, this is just like the Boris Johnson scandal, you know? And, and so people can kind of read into it and, and reflect on whatever their current circumstances are. Yeah, we, you know, we're having an election soon probably and we have a yeah. guy who is in the same sort of niche who we're all <laughs> very afraid of yeah yeah uh so it sounds like it's been sort of stewing in your brain for quite a while and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one one thing that i kind of really like about the movie is that it, it flows really freely between genres and tones and yeah. really manages to in a really interesting at the best comparison i can come up with is in a really jazzy way um how like did yeah. how did how do you how do you manage that because sometimes it's a really serious thriller and sometimes it's really screwball and yeah. how did you reconcile those two things well uh, it's funny you mentioned jazz because you know the key thing i think as filmmakers is to to navigate tone is the music that you have mm -hmm. and so we very early on in the writing process decided to go with kind of full brazilian bossa nova underlying musical genre um and it's all original music um we have i have a great composing partner and dear friend luis guerra um and and he's really good at doing bossa nova but and what he said about it is that what's great about bossa nova is that it can you can kind of tweak it to make it thriller or spy or funny you know like depending on the tone of the scene you're doing and and still have that consistent kind of bossa nova rhythm and beats and, and melodies so so that was kind of how we would sort of navigate those those issues and part of it is also the you know phenomenal acting you know we have willa fitzgerald as connie and john magaro as paul and they're kind of the straight characters and it's a little bit like you know we we, we sort of thought about it in terms of alice in wonderland like there is this you know, normal character, Connie, who as soon as she takes a bite of that Wonder Bread in the diner, mm -hmm. um, she's through the looking glass and starts meeting all these crazy characters. And so it's a little bit, you know, um, uh, you know, we had that in mind kind of as, as we were going through it. And that's why there's the song at the end of the movie called Wonder Bread, um, which kind of does analogize it as sort of the Alice in Wonder Bread, you know, analogy. But, um, and then, yeah, we just had all these nutty, characters and you know and the actors who played those just you know ran with it which was fantastic I, and i let them so yeah i want to come back to some of the supporting players in a moment <laughs> but he already brought up um uh john and willa um how did you first how did you connect with them to, to start and then how did how did you yeah. did you have to like mold the characters to them or did they just fall right into it no, they just fell into it. Um, Willa was recommended by her agent, um, who's someone that had recommended other people to me in other films. So I, I trusted him. Mm -hmm. But then she'd also worked with a director I know named uh, Lucky McKee, who said great things about her. I mean, as directors, we talk to each other and we get recommendations from other people. Uh, Kelly Reichardt had recommended uh, John McGarrett because he had just been in First Cow uh, mm -hmm. that she had directed. And I'll trust anything she says. So um and that was that was kind of how we got them involved. Um, and then they, you know, but they're both, you know, the key thing is they're all the actors really are, are smart people and they, you know, and they're, and they're smart actors and they have a lot of theater training and not to mention, you know, TV and film. So 
it's, you know, and I kind of let them run with it, but also we were all staying at this place, the Silver Sands Motel, which <laughs> really is a vintage vibe. And, and we were just hanging out. Willa brought her dog, you know, they, the actors were drinking product placement wine and eating product placement Omaha steaks. And, you know, so it was, we were all were kind of feeling that 1974 vibe while making the movie and um, which was, you know, lovely. Mm -hmm. I really like there's a lot of Willow's dialogue in particular is very her character seems to have a uh, photographic memory almost mm -hmm. and she's yeah. very very zippy is that all like how much rehearsal time did that take or was she just on it she's really good um we, because we had no rehearsal time um oh. just the the nature of when casting and scheduling whatever we we really didn't um i think she and john you know i mean we were all staying in the same place so i think they would they would rehearse a little bit at night uh, before but no she's very good at memorizing dialogue which you know not every you know there's a lot of great actors who aren't and um and she's a great actor who who is and and that was you know fantastic you know and then she and john just have this great chemistry you know between them where they can bounce off each other so nice you know. Um, so, so some of the supporting players in this, I think, uh, the whole thing you said about them being the straight characters versus the supporting characters being a little more zany. Mm -hmm. Um, I, so Vondi Curtis Hall and Catherine Curtin and Richard Kind <laughs> all play really kind of wacky characters. Yeah. Are these, are these based on someone, you know, like, can you, can you safely say it like blink? Blink twice if, if that's true, because we're on radio. <laughs> well, you know, this was well for Richard Kind. I mean, this was the second film I had done with with Richard. And and so his was the one character that we that my writing partner, Daniel Moya and I and, and he and Daniel had worked on my last film, too. So he was familiar with Richard, obviously. And I mean, most people are. Um, so that was the one character that we kind of wrote specifically for him. Uh, we didn't know for sure we'd get him because he's he's a really busy working actor. And so schedule wise, we didn't know we'd get him, but we just had, had him kind of a little bit in mind for that part. Um, and uh, and my producing partner, Terry, is the guy who's the manager at the motel or, or was at the time. And so uh, Terry always thought it was a little based on him. It, it really wasn't. But it was um, but it was kind of based on kind of the speech patterns of of, of Richard himself. Um, and then, you know, so that, so he kind of, you know, the character fit him like a glove, you know, by design. Mm -hmm. um, but the other two, um, uh, Kathy Curtin and uh, Vondi Curtis Hall, I mean, they were cast with about 36 hours notice. Um, oh, wow. Cast really at the last minute, um, way, way last minute. <laughs> and, um, um, but they just, you know, they just love those characters. And, you know, what we were kind of playing around with with them was sort of this idea of what was the World War II generation doing in 1974 and kind of their whole backstory is a little I mean, there's a little reference to Julia Child um, because she was a she was in the OSS during World War II, which is a U.S. reference. But um, mm -hmm. Uh, but anyway, so there's a couple little hints to, to what might be going on with, with them, but it's also just sort of, you know, a, a, a cliche in movies, which I like, which is that, you know, the American, you know, troops and after Normandy, you know, were always falling in love with the local French woman, you know, that was just, uh, that's like <laughs> in every world war two movie. And so then the question is, you know, what happens to them, you know, 25 years later and, and, and how can we play with, um, 
with sort of that generation in 1974. And that's kind of what we're doing is we're playing with sort of all the different kind of cultural generations at play in 1974, because it's a very specific time. It's pre-disco, but it's post sort of peace and love hippies. And mm-hmm. so the hippies that we do have in the film, they're not exactly peace and love hippies. They're more sort of what was going on in, in 74 with, you know, are they a cult? Are they, you know, who knows what they are? They're not yeah. exactly who they appear to be either. So yeah, they're sort of searching for a cultural revolution that isn't currently there. Yeah. Yeah. But meanwhile, you've got this, you know, it was the very tail end of the Vietnam war, but there were still a lot of very fresh ramifications of Vietnam going on at that time, which you see in a few of the characters. So, mm-hmm. um, so it was an interesting time for sure. And then of course, Watergate, which had already been brewing for about two years at that point. So everybody was very familiar with Watergate. Right. It, during the, there's a scene where um, Willa and uh, John and Vonnie Curtis Hall and Catherine Curtin all have dinner together. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how you approach that as a director. There's a there's a great segment where Catherine Curtin is standing and sort of ranting about the the media, and it seems to cut between like multiple takes and multiple performances of the same dialogue. And I really I really enjoyed that. How did you okay. approach all of that? Well, that's um, that very specific kind of jump cut technique is something I've done in every one of my movies in at least one scene. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, and it kind of goes to back when I was, and I'm actually staring at my negative right now from my very first film, which was shot on 35 millimeter short ends, Mm -hmm. which was a way you would make low budget indie films in the nineties, where you only had like 40 seconds per take because you were using these leftover films from other films. And so you kind of had to do these kind of jump cut techniques. Um, but then just in editing, I, I like. I like doing that. And I, and I, I mean, this, this film, I'm the editor, uh, um, but other films I've, I've worked on my own editing on, on all my films, at least to a certain extent. Um, but it also kind of fit with that montage. It also fit with the fact that we had just cast her 36 hours before and she could not memorize. I mean, she, she was the first one to tell me this. she's like, I can't memorize a two page monologue, you know, by right. tomorrow. And I didn't blame her. And I but I also knew that, um that i wanted to do that scene in that style and i said this is great because then you don't have to stress over memorizing everything in all one take i don't have to stress over how i'm going to shoot it because i know i'm going to shoot it in this particular style and and the other actors don't have to worry stress and worry about it so you know that's part of what you do as a director hopefully is that you kind of see what your actors can do and which combinations of actors can do a you know five minute oneer you know and which ones do you need to cut up and then finding a creative way to edit and shoot that in a way that that makes sense for the film and so you know in this case that was that was kind of how that scene evolved but it was um but it's always you know a, a trick i have in my back pocket that i like to use in every film so uh this was like oh yeah no this is when we're going to do that and, It'll right. solve the, a bunch of problems all at once. And in terms of her uh, performance, was it was it? Is one of the shorter clips that I really love is one she's in the middle of a rant and it cuts to one where she's like yelling into a baguette as though it's a <laughs> microphone. Yeah. And I just yeah. it's at some point are you just like okay do it again but less and do it again but like dial it to twelve like how did you 
Yeah. Was it all was I, it all her or were you just like go or no? I was like, yeah, do it again, but this time grab the grab the baguette. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um and it was great. Like as soon as she did it, we're like, oh yeah, that's going to the film. You know. <laughs> um yeah, because when you're doing that kind of jump cut editing technique, the trick is that because normally on a film, you tell the actor, you know, and the actors do this, they do the same take every way you know the script supervisors telling them oh use your left hand for this line your right hand for this line whatever but if you do if you know you're going to edit with that technique you want them to do something different every time otherwise it's right. otherwise it doesn't really cut together very well so you have to tell them okay this time do you know go sit in the chair at this time this time face that direction this time face that direction and um, which is weird because it's very counterintuitive to what actors are trained to do in 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 film and 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 the script supervisor's freaking out. She's like, oh, she did it differently this time. I was like, I want her to do it differently this time. You know, that's <laughs> that that's how this is going to work. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm I'm old now, and um, you know, and I've I've made it. This is about my sixth film or so, and so I've you know, that comes a little bit with experience is knowing that, okay, this, you know, for this scene, you're going to do it this way. This other scene, we're going to do it a totally different way. Nice. Uh, well, moving on to some of the other unseen supporting characters, you got mm. Bruce Campbell and oh, John yeah. Cryer. And uh, there's a third person, Ted, Ted, Ted Raimi. Raimi. Yeah. Um, all to be on the, on the, the tape. Yeah. Um, and so I actually just finished rewatching the movie, like literally like 20 minutes ago, <laughs> um, just in preparation to speak oh, to you today. You. Um, but one thing I paid more attention to this time than last time was just the dialogue on the tape. Mm -hmm. And I, and I right. got to ask, how tightly scripted was that? Or did you just be like, OK, just just talk? <laughs> uh, Is it somewhere in, the, in between? No, it's very tightly scripted. And, and, it, and it's by design because we hadn't the plan was always to shoot record that dialogue which is basically 18 and a half minutes of the nixon tape um we were going to always record it in post-production and and wait until they were all in la together at a studio and, and do it then um and what that meant is that when we were recording it when we were filming the actors which is connie and paul primarily uh reacting to the tape we had to have a scratch track which um, my writing partner, Daniel, and, and our um, script supervisor, Tamara, and I, I, th I think I played Nixon in that one. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we, it was all scripted and we recorded the scratch track, which then Daniel was listening to on an iPhone, tucked into a corner in the room and would yell out very specific cues. So we'd rehearsed it with uh, Will and John reacting to these certain cues at different points because they, they talked to, you know, and react to the tape. And so then we had like these one word cues, you know, couch or IDT or Liddy or things like that, that Daniel would kind of shout out. And I, I was just listening to dailies again a couple of weeks ago. And, and you can hear like this disembodied voice, like shout these little keywords. But anyway, what that meant is then, then when we did record the tape, it had to be pretty much exactly as the scratch track had been. So now, in our case, we, we started shooting March 3rd, 2020. What could possibly go wrong in March of 2020? And we made it about 11 days into the shoot. We found out we were one of the last films shooting in North America. And we, and we shut down for the pandemic like everyone else. And uh, we still had four days left to go. But we had this six-month healthy hiatus or pandemic pause that we took 
And we were, um, and then about a couple months into that, we said, you know what, all these actors, these voice actors are sitting at home in different places. Actually, Ted was in Canada, uh, I think in Winnipeg at the time. Um, and, and Bruce was in Oregon, John was in LA. And we said, you know, you've all got Zoom, you've all got, you know, decent microphones by now, and you're all sitting at home, not doing anything. So why don't we record those sessions over Zoom? And they were like, wow, this is amazing. This is June of 2020 when actors couldn't do anything. You know, there was no theater, no film, no TV. So, uh, so we did this kind of radio play, you know, while, uh, you know, over, over the course of a couple of days sessions. And, um, and what was great was we had the scripted sections, but then we did allow a little bit of improv because, because there's two layers of the tape. We knew we needed some filler, in, you know, uh, that we would need some, some little filler gaps to play under other recordings or over other recordings. So, um, and especially, uh, we didn't have a lot of time with Bruce and John, but Bruce and Ted, um, who are old friends, you know, going back to the Detroit Evil Dead days. Um, and they had actually done some Nixon comedy bits themselves about a year earlier on a, on a like comedy album that they put together where Ted was Nixon and Bruce was Haldeman or something. Um, so they were pretty familiar with the characters and, and the world of Watergate. So they did some really funny stuff, which I don't know how much of it actually winds up in the film, but it's, but they're pretty funny when they go at it together. Yeah. You can definitely tell that they are old friends, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the way they yeah. riff off one another. They yeah, are exactly. Yeah. You can, you can definitely tell they've known each other since. Yeah. Yeah. Film school. Since they were teenagers. I mean, yeah, yeah. really. And, and Bruce was the one who recommended Ted. I mean, that was, it wasn't a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. You know, we needed someone and Bruce was like, yeah, let's call Teddy. You know? Yeah. Cool. Um, well, now that the film is coming out, um, is there looking, looking back, I mean, obviously the pandemic impacted things and, but is there anything you would do differently if you had to do it over? Um, no, not really. I mean, the, the, you know, I hate to say it, but that six month gap, um, you know, and then we came back in September, 2020 when Screen Actors Guild and Directors Guild had the kind of COVID safe protocols and we were one of the first films back. I mean, it was very stressful to shoot then for sure. But, um, but that six month gave us a little bit of time to kind of tweak the script and go, oh, we need a little bit more of this or we need a little bit less of that. And, um, yeah, I mean, look, as filmmakers, whether you're making an independent film or a studio film, you always want more money and more time, you know, to do everything. But, um, but I have very few complaints about this. I mean, with that extra time gave us time to work on the script. It gave us time to, to you know, edit the first eighty percent of the film, um, and uh, but it also gave us time to work on the music too. And so, consequently, we have sixty-three minute uh, soundtrack album that's available out now on uh, iTunes and Spotify and wherever fine soundtrack albums are sold. Um, and so we were able to work with musicians in Brazil and Mexico City, um, again, because musicians were sitting around not doing anything and, and were eager to work remotely. So, um, so that was, I think, an, a big upside to the pandemic. I, I think if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I, I know we wouldn't have had as many songs or as many you know, cues in the film. So um, yeah, I mean, look, there's always things you know, making a movie is like building a house. If you can get 85% of what you want, you know, you should, you should be happy and hope that no one got injured. So, um, and to that end, I think we, we did okay. No one got COVID while we were shooting the film. And uh, I think more of us have gotten it during the festival circuit, but you know, we're still alive. So that's good. Um, and then, 
Yeah. So it's never, but you know, there's the old adage that you make a film three times, you make it in the script, you make it shooting, and then you make it in, in editing. And, and this is, this film is no different than that. I mean, there's definitely things that are different from the original script, but they're not necessarily worse in many cases they're better. So. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but you've obviously been on the, on the press trail for months and <laughs> years, probably yeah. years. Um, is there anything that people aren't asking about that you kind of wish they would? Um, no, I mean, we have a phenomenal crew that worked on the film that really, you know, gave it a great look and feel and, um, you know, some uh, very talented artists that worked on it uh, and collaborated together. Um, uh, yeah, no, people are asking. I think you're asking the right questions. You've now seen it a couple of <laughs> times, so you should you should know. Um, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing is what happens next with us. I mean, there's there's already been some talk of turning it into a play. Um, mm-hmm. There's a couple of theater companies that have, have approached us about that. Um, there's some chatter about turning it into a, a, an episodic series because without giving away the ending, that we leave a lot open to what happens next. And and that was kind of intentional to, to you know, wrap thing, not wrap things up completely. So uh, so we'll see what happens with it next. But it's, you know, it's been a fun project. It's all, an, you know, it's all original material from us. So we can kind of do with it what we want. And the soundtrack itself is, you know, it's, 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 it's one starting point, but, um, uh, but I think there's still some life in, uh, in 18 and a half one way or the other, but, but for now, we just want people to watch the movie. So wherever they can, <laughs> I mean, it's playing in theaters in the U S um, and then in Canada, it'll be coming out on VOD on July 5th. Um, uh, and then the UK on July 11th um, uh, UK and Ireland. Um, but then it's also going to be playing on airplanes in the, in September, various airlines, and then, you know, DVD and Blu-ray coming up. So there's still a lot, there's still a lot for me to do. I mean, definitely um, right. a lot of accounting that has to happen still <laughs> the boring, <laughs> the boring stuff that nobody asks questions about. And maybe that's just as well. So maybe, well, uh, is there any, any other projects on the horizon? I mean, we're through this and we're through uh, slam dance this year. So it's just, uh, no, just this. Nothing just this awesome yeah because i know i mean i know from experience this is going to keep me busy for a while um you know there's and there's i mean and then i have to go back to some of my old films and re-release them rescan negatives clean out the garage you know things yeah. like that which you know honestly the more films you make i mean it's a good thing but then you still have to go back and deal with the old ones one way or the other get them get them out again uh, right. by any means necessary gotcha cool well um that's really all i had today so thank you mm. so much for your time i very much appreciate it no thank and, you. and uh i hope honestly if it if the, if the film becomes a play i would definitely want to see that just for the record <laughs> well, um that's great to hear. but yeah thank you for your time and i hope the rest of the release goes great man yeah thanks man really appreciate it 18 and a half is a fun movie and it is finally coming out on july the 5th on demand Look for it wherever you look for those things, including in our show notes where there will be on-demand links powered by Just Watch. Thank you so much for listening to this interview. If you like what you've heard, you can support us by giving us a like, a subscription, or a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. Or if you prefer to support us a little more directly, we do, of course, have a Patreon also linked in the show notes.
We record this on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish Nations here in Vancouver, BC. It is produced by me, Matthew, and I want to thank you very much for listening on this awesome Friday.